today we got the owner of McCracken Bull Company, Vidal McCracken. We're all recording. Uh, I'm gonna try my best not to cuss, man. I try. I try. The best one I did was with Coach Rao. I don't think I said one like f bomb. I might have said shit or something like that. Yeah. I didn't say no f bombs. So I mean, we can go ahead and jump into it. One of the big things to me about the bull riding is, you know, I didn't grow up around it. I'm like, I had friends that had chances when I was little, but I never got into it. And then it just so happens I moved here, and then Derek moved in next door. He said he knew you through wrestling and uh, bulls as well. You know, recently I ran into Gates and we started talking about it out there at the rodeo and stuff. I just didn't realize it was that that big of a deal. And you, from the layman point of view, is you only hear about the bull riders and stuff. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You don't you don't look at like the stuff that goes into raising these bulls. You don't look in like how these bulls. I mean, these bulls are pretty much treated like royalty compared to <laughs> the theater yeah, cats. You know, with that being said, how did you get into the bull industry? Growing up, I was. My grandpa, he had he had cows and and uh, they were just wild crossbred cattle that have an athletic background. I I, I like that kind of thing. I like that right. wild aspect to it. I like that the outlaw aspect that those cattle had. And um, when I bought my first set of cows in I believe it was two thousand, late two thousand, early two thousand one, um, I went to the sale barn. I bought some uh, crossbred cattle that were tiger stripe rental cows that uh, kind of fit that mold of what I liked and. I worked with, with a guy named Mike Barber, which we became real good friends. He was a bull rider. Obviously, I wasn't. I, I, I never competed in, 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 in rodeo or bull riding or anything, but working with him, becoming friends with him, he knew I had those cows and, and I always had that interest in those, those wild animals. I, you know, I'd go to the rodeos and see those bulls buck. And, you know, as a kid, I always thought that the cowboys were, the, were cool as, as could be, you know, as, as, a, as a young Right. Boy, you look up to those macho kind of guys that they're just tough guys. And, you know, you looked up to that. So as a kid, that's kind of what I looked up to. But I always looked at those animals as just just the things that they could do. I admired that. So when I bought that first set of cows and then, you know, working with Mike and talking to him and he kind of told me, he just said, hey, he said, you know, I, I'm I've rode bulls. Now I'm breeding these bulls. And he, he raised some really good ones. So. At that time, he sold a couple for good money, you know, over $10,000. And, you know, as a young kid, I was 19, 20 years old thinking, hey, I can do that too. Of course, it's proved harder than, it's proved harder to, to make that kind of money with them than what I thought when I started. But, but Mike kind of gave me that start. He, he took me and showed me a herd of cattle that there was a cow in there that was probably 20 years old at the time, but went back to deep plumber genetics, which I'll, we'll talk about that some later as we go, the genetics and stuff. But, he showed me that group of cows and and told me, you know, you got these tiger stripe cows, these these crossbred cattle. Just why don't you find a bull and put on them? Which, like I said, he had bulls. He he was raising bulls, and he kind of pointed me in some directions of different people to talk to and to try to get you know started. So I started breeding that set of cows that I had to some bulls that bucked, and uh, you know, twenty twenty one years later, here I am, still trying to raise a bull that bucks. Um, it gets harder and harder every year. As you said, as you know, here in Southwest Oklahoma, 20, 21 years I've been doing it. There's, there's over 30 or 40 people within an hour of here that does this. Some are small like myself. I have about 40 cows that I breed. I think that's what I bred this year is 40 cows and heifers. And some have three or 400 head of cows. So for me, it's, I'm not a big time breeder. I'm, I'm a small breeder. Each year I try to breed to the best bulls that I can. In doing that, it's it's hard sometimes because it costs a lot of money to, to lease bulls. 
Um, so your connections that you have and the people that you know in the business, it helps tremendously. I could talk on and on and on about people who's helped me, people who's leased me bulls, loaned me bulls, but that list would be long. My brother-in-law, he races, uh, well, he owns a horse, a racehorse, and they have to be live breeding. Is that the same thing with the, the bulls, or can you do a... Uh... No, um, with with bulls, and, and I can t- I'll, I'll go back to kind of when this... Let me go back to... I'll just... Let's talk about the registry itself. So back in the mid, mid-90s, uh, a guy named Bob Tallman started the Rodeo Stock Registry of North America. And uh, it kind of all started because of the bull bodacious. Everybody's probably heard of the bull bodacious. People were selling animals at that time unregistered because there wasn't there wasn't a registry for, for bucking bulls. They He got to looking around, I guess, and people were selling bulls or, or saying, you know, I've got five bulls here that's out of bodacious. Well, there was no way to prove it. So he and some other guys, they... They got together and they started, uh, they collected semen on, on these bulls that were bucking at that time, you know, that were popular in the PRCA. And I guess at that time, the BRO, the bull rider only events and the PBR had started in, I think, 92, 1992. So those bulls that were bucking at that time that were, you know, good bulls, they they started collecting some of those bulls and started breeding AI and artificial inseminating cows. Right. Uh, they did that to create the registry of what, what it is now, but they had to have a pool or sample of animals that they knew were out of certain bulls. They collected the DNA, they had it cataloged. So now you, if, if you had a, a bull that you say is out of bodacious, you collect DNA on it, you register it or run him against the DNA that was bodacious. So now you could prove uh, what you were advertising as being out of bodacious or whatever bull, whatever bull you want to put in there. So, so to answer your question about the live breeding, no, they don't have to be live bred. You can AI, they AI cattle now, they in vitro fertilization, you know, they take the oocytes out of cows, they fertilize them in a Petri dish and they put them back in a cow. It's more scientific than that, obviously, but. Probably not um, cheap either. Is it? No, it, it, in a sense it is, I guess, if you, if you've got the money to spend to do it, you're creating animals that in your mind are going to work that are going to buck or going to perform. Um, so in a sense, it, it could be cheap, yes. Somebody like me, that's this is more of a, a hobby or something that I'm just doing because I enjoy doing it. Uh, it. It can get expensive, yes. But yeah, I mean, they even clone animals now. There's, there's clone bucking bulls. I don't think any of them have done as well as the animal they were cloned after. And that's that's very expensive. I believe it's $30,000 to create Any examples those. of that? Yeah, uh, Houdini, I think, was the first, is a bull that's the number one sire in the American Bucking Bull in the registry. Blueberry Wine was cloned. I think Moody Blues. There's been several. There's 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 been several. And there's, and there's cows that's been been cloned. And it may be cheaper than that now, but I, I think when it first started, it, I believe it was twenty to 30000 something like that. Too. And like I said, that I don't know if any of the cows have raised anything that's worth anything, and I don't know that the bulls really outperformed or outsired their the the animal that they were cloned from right as far as bulls go like you look at uh the modern day athlete right it's that's why it's so hard to compare like genres right with anything who would be who in this genre mm-hmm. or whatever do the bulls have they advanced what so if you went back and and cloned bodacious right is, is he going to be able to hold his own today in today's crowd it's that like you like you started that question the genres the it's hard to, to talk about it's hard to compare Michael Jordan and LeBron James. You know, it's hard to do those things. The elite bulls of, you know, the late 90s, mid 90s, 
even before that, those bulls would still be relevant today. But the breeding, the numbers of people who are doing what I'm doing, we, we create so many animals every year that those animals of the past, yeah, they'd still be relevant. If you went to a bull riding, for instance, in the mid-90s, you're going to show up and there's one or two bulls on that level of bodacious, right. just using him for an example. Now you show up and there's as many as you want. It's the, there's this, the numbers are so much more because people are, people are spending the time to sit down and study these animals and say, I want to breed this bull to this cow because this cow's calves in the past have done this. This bull has produced these calves. So that it's, it's a, it's a thing that people put a lot of time and, and energy into trying to create that next bodacious bushwhacker bruiser, you know, the, the elite bulls. And it's, it's a tough task. Like I said, I've been doing it for over 20 years. I've raised some really good bulls, um, but not to that level. How do they actually go about scoring the way the, the bulls buck? So in bull riding, the, the bull uh, gets 50 points, a possibility of 50 points. The, the bull rider gets the other 50. So a, a, a perfect score would be 100. There's four judges. They mark them 1 through 25. Um, the bulls are basically, they're, they're, there's five elements that they judge them on. Each element they get anywhere from a 0 to a 5. Uh, so the first, the first element they look at is, is buck. You know, the animal, when he jumps out of the bucking shoes, when he blows out of there, how high is he getting off the ground? If he blows three or four foot up in there, he's getting a five. If he just jumps out there and his feet get three inches off the ground and he turns back and starts spinning, he's not going to get marked very high in that element. The second element that they look at is kick, and that's kind of referring to the back legs of the animal. Uh, some bulls kick straight behind them. Some kick, you know, up in there a little bit. And then some looks like they stand on their nose. Their feet, their back legs extend as far as they can and looks like something an animal shouldn't be able to do but um like the second element's the kick you know if, if they kick way up over their head and they extend they're going to get a five if they don't if they're just real flat and they just spin without kicking they're going to get a zero uh, the third element is spin so if a bull jumps out there and he turns back and starts spinning real fast in a circle he's going to get a good marking for that element he's going to get a five if he goes out four or five jumps and never turns back, he's getting a zero for that element. You want one that's going to turn back and spin. The four things intensity, and that just basically revert refers to how hard that animal's trying. Um, you know as well as I do, like when you watch people run doing sprints, you know, at the end of practice, they're, you know, you're doing conditioning and they're running. You can tell when somebody's going as hard as they can. Maximum effort, yep. You can tell when they're exerting themselves, when they're when they're just giving all they got. And it's the same things with the bulls. Sometimes they go through the motions, and you can just you see it. Those good ones, you can almost feel that intensity. You can almost feel it as they buck. That's kind of funny to say, and it sounds funny, but it, it's if you're there behind the buck and shoots, or you're there in the arena watching them, you see it. So the hard, the, the more intensity a bull has, the higher they get marked on that element. Um, and the last thing is just degree of difficulty. Um, if they do one through four well, then usually this element it gets marked well. Some things that the animal can do to get extra points when they when they jump out there and turn back. If they're moving forward as they spin, if they're drifting, um, sometimes bulls will jump out there and they just spin in a circle, so that they have a lot of timing to them. A bull rider can can kind of it's it's easier for them to ride that kind. If they're moving forward in their spin, if they're if they're covering ground drifting, that ups the degree of difficulty. If they get up in there and they belly roll and, and do those kinds of things, that's a degree of difficulty. Um, if they change directions, if they jump out there and start spinning and 
you know, jump out and spin the other way. That's that's another degree of difficulty that, that comes in. Another thing is drop. You know, they get way up in the air, and that front end drops, and that back end comes up, and they kick over their head. Um, that's That changes the, the degree of difficulty. And then, you know, just lack of timing. If a bull's kind of out of line, he's not giving a rider a, a chance to, to match the timing or make the adjustments that he needs, um, that changes the degree of difficulty as well. You know, bulls at the PBR, the professional bull riding events, a true 22-point bull is what breeders look to raise because those in the world, there's probably, there might be 30 or 40 of them that are true 22-point bulls. You get above 22, 22 and a half, 23, those are the bulls that that are elite. I'd say the 22-pointers are elite, but once you start getting above that, you're talking about bulls that are in the in the running to possibly be in the, the world champion race to be bucking bull of the year. And that's what we all strive for. It's hard. It's difficult. It's just, it, and it's hard to get a bull to that level. It's almost even harder to keep them at that level. Why is that? Just wear and tear? Uh, injuries is part of it. Sadly, I mean, it's like any other sport. There's there's going to be injuries. Some bulls can't take the hauling. You know, they can't load them on a trailer and hauling them, you know, eight hours or whatever it is. And then being away from home, just there's there's different factors. They're just like you or me. They're, they're going to, you know, you and I, we can train to do something. But once we're out of our element, right. that changes things. You're not at home anymore. Um, sometimes the bulls aren't exposed to things as they're coming up. They're not... They're not uh, trained to take the hauling. There's just different things. There's indoor arenas. There's outdoor arenas. Some bulls buck better outdoors than they do indoors. Uh, one of the bulls, one of my first bulls that, that I had, that was he was marked over 22 several times, and he was also marked an eight or a nine. But if you bucked him outdoors, he was as rank as anything alive. And in some indoors arenas, he was fine. Um, but there was a couple of times that he had bad trips, and they were. It was an indoor arenas, and I, for whatever reason, I don't, you know, I don't know. It's well, the indoor arenas, it's just like basically concrete, and they put dirt over it, right? Right, but and you know they got, you know, there's there's a there's a roof over their head. It, it sounds it sounds silly. I, I this particular bull, uh, we were in Oklahoma City at a PBR event there, and uh, we we brought him in that morning just to show him the arena and show him the outgate. He, you know, he. he he hadn't had a lot of training at that point. He hadn't. He, he had probably ten or fifteen outs, but he was he was really really good. We were trying to give him all the advantage we could. We wanted to show him the arena, wanted to show him the outgate, wanted to do all those things. We brought him up through the outgate, and he gets into the arena where the outgate is. The, the the roof wasn't that high. Once he stepped through that outgate, and the the ceiling's 40, 50 foot tall, however tall the the ceiling is there, he he just kind of hunkered down and looked up. And he turned around and he came back out. Well, that night he had a terrible trip. They got a rewrite on him, and I can't explain it. But you know, it just it affects it affects them all differently. Um, and there's other aspects to it. You know, some bulls on the road they don't they don't eat, they don't drink, they don't do the things that they normally do in their routine, and it just affects them. Is there anything you can do, like far as training wise goes there? I mean, I, I'm assuming like you see a bull, and he's going to have there's something there you, you're going to see, right? But is there any training or anything? Yes, absolutely, and it's. When I started, like I said, when I when I first started, I didn't understand all of this, and I and I still I learn every day from things I read, things I see, things you know. If I go to somebody's place, I pay attention to what they're doing. But yes, there's there's several things you do, and none of it's none of it's right, none of it's wrong. It's it's just what works best for certain people and what works best for animals. They're just like kids; they're all different. You start them when they're young, like me, for instance. I'll, I'll just go through my process of starting these, the young bulls. I'll wean them. In the fall, 
they're usually I can't I start calving it in, in March so I try to I try to start weaning my calves around November um, I'll feed them for about a month or two pretty hard in that time I try to move them around different pens I keep them lotted up in a, in a, in a pretty good sized trap I try to move them around different pens get them used to me get them used to me walking around them they're wild. They're like deer. You walk in a set of calves and they're bouncing off the pins. They're trying to jump out. They're, they're, it's just wild. And if you've never seen it, it's hard to understand. But they just got to get used to you. So I, I'll start, you know, hand feeding them, start walking through them, try to move them, you know, from different pin to pin, you know, shutting gates behind them, just exposing them to things that they haven't been exposed to in their, you know, seven or eight months of life out in the pasture. When they're out in the pasture with their mama, the mama protects them and she don't let them get in no trouble. But once you get them caught and you pin them up, they're in trouble. They're, you know, it's like a, it's like backing a tiger into a corner. They're going to fight right. to get out. So you got to, you got to bring them along slow. And some bulls, some animals, I'm just going to say animals because it includes the heifers. You've got to start exposing them to things that makes them a little bit uncomfortable. So when they get in situations as you start training them, it's not new to them. It's just like a kid in, in a sport. Um, you can take them out here and play catch all day long, just playing catch. But you throw them in a game, things right. are uncomfortable. You got somebody trying to hit you. You got somebody trying to run you over. And it's the same thing with animals. Their their mind starts thinking, "I've got to get away. I've got to, you know, they're going to do harm to me." But starting them off like that, start moving them around pens, be, just being around them, talking to them. I, I leave a radio out so they're hearing noise, they're hearing voices, and then from there, after about a month or two, I'll start loading them up on a trailer. And I'll drive them around. I'll leave them on a trailer all day long. I'll park it in the barn if it's hot, you know, and just where they're in the shade. And, and I'll just leave a radio playing there for them. Being on that trailer, being confined, the noise, you know, they start learning. They start learning that this isn't going to hurt me. This is this is okay. I'll do that a few, you know, for a few days, two or three different debt times. I'll take them to an arena. And at that point, I'll break them into, you know, groups of three or four and pin them up separately, you know, and I'll start moving them from pin to pin like that, you know, in, in smaller groups. Once they kind of get to where you can get in that pin with them and they'll just pass by you, they don't, they're not trying to jump out. They're not trying to run you over. I'll start progressing to load them into a buck and shoot. And the first few times I'll, I'll run them through the buck and shoot. The first few times it's hard to get them to load. So I'll leave the gate, I'll leave the buck and shoot gate open where they can run up that load lane. They can go out of that buck and shoot into the arena. I'll walk out there and I'll bring them back out. And I'll do that several times. Once I can kind of see that they're comfortable doing that, they're comfortable loading, I'll start stopping them in the load lane and I'll put them in that buck and shoot one at a time. And then I'll open the buck and shoot and let them out. And this it's a process. It, it takes several days. It takes a lot of time. And then once once they get to that point where they'll load in that load lane, they'll go in that buck and shoot. Then I'll start making them stand in the buck and shoot. I'll start putting my hands on them, start rubbing them down, putting a flank over their back and running underneath them. Uh, just exposing them to things that that's going to happen to them while they're in that buck and shoot. And just to show that it's not going to hurt them. This It's nothing that they should be scared of. And those those animals, they remember that. As, as you bring them along, they remember... They remember the things you do to them. They remember how hard you push them. They remember if you're hitting them or hot shotting them. I, I don't. I try not to hot shot animals. I try not to hit them. I try to just let them go at their pace because when you start beating on them, you start hot shotting them. They remember that. They're gonna fight that. That's what's gonna stick out in their head. Not that hey, there's an open lane here. I can go through it. I'm gonna go into this little box and then I'm gonna be out in the arena. I want them to remember the positive things. As I pro- as I progress through that and I get them to where they'll stand in the buck and shoot. 
in the first time or two I buck them, they'll still get in the buck and shoot and they'll jump around and move around and they'll have some habits that you got to work through. And then the more you do that, the less they do those bad things. They learn good habits. They'll stand for you. They'll, they'll let you put the dummy on them. They'll let you put the flank on them. And by this time I've spent probably two months doing these things, you know, from the time I've weaned them two or three months of, of handling them and, and, and shoot training them and things. And then I'll start bucking them with a dummy. Is that the box? Yeah, it's an electrical box that sets on their back. It has a girth strap that goes around. Um, in a sense, you, you tighten it up. And you don't tighten it super tight. They've got to be able to breathe. Um, there's a lot of a lot of bad, I guess, negative things people say about what we do to these animals to get them to, to do what they do. Some people say we shock them as they buck. Some people say you tie their testicles up with a flank. There's... There's all kinds of things people say, and, and, and none of it's true. There are people who have done things in the past. There's people who probably still do things that I wouldn't do to an animal. The, the dummy itself, no, it doesn't shock them. It just it sets on their back. It's it's a weighted dummy. We have two different dummies. I think one of them's 14 pounds, and the other one's 20, 21. Or t- I don't I don't remember the exact weight, but the smaller one, the the smaller one, I think it's 14, 12 or 14. We we start bucking those bulls. You know, as, as yearlings, as a year, as a, as a one-year-old, we'll start bucking them with that smaller dummy. So you put the dummy on on the bull, and then you flank it. As you start these bulls, there's a a pin that's connected to a rope. Uh, the pin's probably six inches long. It goes into the flank. When you buck that bull, and the dummy comes off, it pulls that pin. The flank falls off. The bull quits bucking. Um, so there's that's a safety thing, um, I guess. It. it um, but there's, you know, there's a lot of bad things people say about what we do to these animals, and and truth be told, it's they're like our kids. We we try to do everything we can to keep them from hurting themselves or or just being doing wrong things to them in general. It seems to me like location is a pretty big deal based off you know how good that bull is going to perform. So when you're traveling over, you know, the U.S. different locations, I'm assuming the farther away, the more shit you got to worry about. Yeah, and. And I'll tie that into, I'll finish up the what we're talking about. I'll tie that into it. So, you know, we, we start bucking those kids when they're, you know, yearlings as a year old. And there's competition for yearlings now. And it's, so you have to start bucking them at a younger age if you're, if you're trying to do the competition side of this. So you'll buck them a handful of times at home. Um, you may take them to your buddy's place and buck them a time or two or, you know, different, different arenas, different locations. Once, and, and, and some bulls, when you start bucking them, they're patterned up. They they jump out there and do what they're going to do from day one. And, and they get better. Some get worse the more you buck them. I, I've had them go both ways. Um, some bulls, it'll take seven to ten trips on them before you get, before you see what they really could be. It's just like you starting a, a, a sport you've never done. You're awkward. Your body doesn't know what to do. There's no muscle memory. Just like riding a bike. The first time you get on a bike and start to ride it without training wheels, you're going to fall over. Or get on a skateboard, you're going to fall on your rear. You got to put some trips on. And then that comes the the traveling part. Like I said, you start traveling to your buddy's place that may live 10 or 15 minutes from here or or 30 minutes, whatever it may be. You start traveling with them. Um, You start exposing them to different arenas. You you show them things that, you know, as you started them, you've started showing them these things. And now you're progressing what you're showing them. You're progressing what you're exposing them to. And I've done this in the past, and and and, and I, <laughs> I've, I've entered different events without taking bulls to different places. And you get there, and you see you see how it affects them. It's it's different. They don't they don't perform like they should. Um, their minds are blown. 
So yeah, and getting back to what you asked about the the rest, uh, if you're going to travel, you know, just a couple hours, it's not too bad for them. When you start talking about eight nine hours on a trailer, I mean, it's right. it's tough on them. And some bulls handle it better than others. So, you know, if if you're if you're traveling, you know, American Buckable Incorporated Finals, which is the registry, the finals is is in Las Vegas. You're not you're not going to load up and drive out there in a day. You know, if you load up in a car, you could you could go out there and, and make it in 20, 21 hours. You're not doing that pulling a trailer with a load of bulls. You're you're gonna you're gonna stop. You're gonna have designated places on your trip that you're gonna stop, and and it may take you three days to get there, depending on where you're coming from. You don't want those bulls on a trailer over eight or nine hours, really. I mean, especially in the summertime, it's it's hard on. You want to get them there where they can rest. You want to unload them. You want to get them where they can eat and drink, um, and just rest. Um, they're just like you or me. If if we don't feel good, we're not gonna perform. You've got to take precautions. You've got to. You got to plan your trips when you leave with with animals. You know where where am I going to stop at with them? Where am I going to unload them? With that comes you got to you got to bring your own. You got you got to haul. You got to bring hay with you. You got to bring feed with you. Um, and some bulls you got to haul the water. Some bulls don't drink water away from home. The the taste of it, whatever it may be, throws them off. There's animals that you got to fill up a fifty gallon drum or whatever it may be, and and you're hauling water to an event. Damn. Um, there's a lot to it. What about international events? How does that work? So I started earlier and talked about Bob Tomlin starting uh, the Rodeo Stock Registry of North America. Um, early 2000s, the professional bull riders, the PBR, bought bought that out. And that became the American Buck and Bull Incorporated, which is the registry, the ABBI. Uh, if you hear me referring to ABBI, that's what that is, American Buck and Bull Incorporated. Most events are sanctioned through the ABBI. I could put an event on at my place and just invite whoever. You don't get points towards the American Buckable Incorporated Finals, ABBI Finals, unless you sanction with the ABBI. The question about international, I don't know, I don't know how many events there are internationally. Um, I do know that the ABBI is now registering animals from Mexico, from Canada, uh, Brazil, Australia, New Zealand, and the United States. So in those other countries, they're, they're holding events. I don't, I don't know enough about what they're doing to really... I just know that there's a lot going on. There's a lot of animals being registered right. in other places other than the United States, which is a good thing. Yeah, so you don't need... So, like, you're not necessarily dragging your bulls through Brazil, right? Like, their own bulls? Yes, absolutely. Brazil's, Brazil is, is huge on bull riding. Uh, when we first started talking about doing this podcast, you brought up the movie Eight Seconds and... In the the Fearless. series Fearless on yeah. Netflix, and I haven't. <laughs> it's been over twenty years since I've watched Eight Seconds. Yo, I just um, it's been a while too. Like I feel like I watch it like once every couple of years. So I never watched the whole thing. You know, when I talked to you, I went and watched that movie. And damn, I didn't remember that movie being that sad. Then that's part of you know that I. It's been over twenty years since I saw it, and it, it's a good movie. It brought yeah, it brought the sport of bull riding into the forefront, into the mainstream at that time, and and, and really. I guess that was like 95 or so when it came out, I believe, or sometime 94. I don't, I don't remember exact, but the PBR had started. Eight seconds comes out in front of the American audience, the viewers. So it really kind of streamlined the sport of bull riding. Probably it, it's very, very important to the history of, of bull riding. So like I said, it, just, it put it out there to people. It became less of a, a niche it kind of legitimized the sport of bull riding to right. be a professional sport, which, and it is. The bull riders are, 
back in that time they they probably spent more time on the bars and and uh, doing those kind of things and they did good old days yeah, <laughs> than training to do what they needed to do but nowadays those guys are in the gym they, there's there's specific workouts they're doing you know they learn it's just like any sport you play there's there's specific workouts you do that pertain to sport specific movements that you do and along the way these guys have figured it out they've, they've come up there's trainers that's come up with different exercises these guys are professional athletes so getting back to eight seconds that that probably is is a big reason why where the sport is where it is today fearless um i haven't watched the whole series i've watched three or four episodes of it and that was a year or two ago right um the big part of that that series has to do with brazil and the brazilian bull riders who have come over here into america and made a living for themselves bull riding is huge in brazil they have a big a big huge event and i'm going to say this wrong bajados or something anyways it's a huge huge bull riding it's multi-day event the numbers of people who come to watch that it's 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 just it's huge it's amazing it's something i would love to go see someday but if you watch that series you'll see that uh it's it's a big big deal to those guys to to brazil but those guys they they grow up in brazil riding bulls and the bulls are different than they are here they're they're probably bigger and i think uh those guys kind of hone their craft there they, they come to america and they come over here with a passion with with a drive to to make a living to make as much money as they can while they can because chances in brazil to to make the kind of money they make here are not it's not the same. Yeah, I seen a dude that won it last year. He got like one point five million or something like that. Total to, earnings to to win to win to be a the PBR world champion. It's you automatically get them. It's a million dollars to win. Okay, to be the world champion, you get a million dollars. Of course, throughout the year, you're making money. Every event you go to, you place, you win. You you're winning money. Um, so yeah, he easily probably won a million and a half last year. Yeah. And that's that's huge. It's the sport of bull riding hadn't always been that way. It hadn't always had the money, the opportunities that it has now. Those Brazilians that have come here, you know, that a lot of people don't. In in the past, people have kind of looked down on it that, that they've come here and they've they've taken uh, opportunities away from Americans. The professional bull riders, it's not American professional bull. Riders, it's professional bull riders. It's right. it's the best of the best. So those guys, when they get here, they're hungry. They're wanting to make money, and I admire the things that they've done. I think fearless kind of puts a a it, get, it gives the viewer a chance to see what those those guys come from their background their their upbringing and you can kind of see why they're hungry. Like you said, I didn't see too much animosity between the American and Brazilian bull riders. At the end of the day, they was just bull riders. Uh, one thing I did notice was they got to select bulls. How do they go about that? So in the PBR, those uh, there are certain rounds they get to. Depending on where they're placed at the event or the world standings, they get to they get to pick what bull they get on in the short round or the, or the championship round. Well, since we're talking about the rounds, so if there's how many rounds there is, does that bull get to, to buck each round, or can he only buck one round? Uh, they generally now that used to they probably bucked every round they could, right? Um, just to get the best bulls, you know, out and uh, give guys an opportunity. And, you know, as a sport, as the years have gone by, the sport's changed and people kind of hold back on bucking them as much as they, as they did, you know, 20, 25 years ago. So if it's a, like, just say it's a three-day event, you know, that bull might buck the first day and then he might buck the third day. Some bulls may buck two consecutive rounds because, it's you know, it's, it's a full day in between and, and some bulls can take it. Some bulls are better that second time you buck them if it's consecutive days. 
Um, some bulls just some bulls don't take it as well, I guess I, sh- I would say, and and you just you don't buck them consecutive days. And age plays into into that fact. Uh, you know, as they get older, you don't want to abuse them. You don't want to put too much wear and tear on them. You may you know buck them once a week, whereas you know when they're younger, they might get bucked two or three times a week, just depending on the circumstances where they're at. And we're talking about the PBR mostly and the, and the ABBI events, but you know, there's there's the PRCA, the Professional Royals Cowboy Association. There's there's other associations, there's other events all throughout the United States that, that have bull ridings. And like I said, it's we're mainly talking about the PBR, the ABBI, because that's what I'm most uh, I guess passionate about, or I don't want to say educated about, because there's a lot I don't know. But uh, like I said earlier, I try to learn every day. But the rest, you know, we, we talked about rest and travel, and it's kind of the same with bucking them. You, you can kind of, the, the more you're around animals, you can read, you can read what that specific animal needs. You can read how they feel. You can see if they're if they're needing rest. They, they'll show you. They'll tell you. I mean, that's just basically handling, you know, your bulls and stuff like yeah. that. Just being around them, being being exposed to them. They're all different. They're just like I said earlier. They're like kids. They all have different personalities. All have different needs. The more you're around them, the more you see that, and it's it's just it's funny. It's funny to spend time with them and see that difference in them. It's just like your kids. They have like I said, they have the different personalities, and and the more you're around, them, the more you see that. Is there any many bulls that just straight surprise you? Overachieved. You kind of talked to one about one that underachieved earlier, but yes, last year I sold a bull for. Not not enough money. <laughs> now <laughs> he we started bucking him when he was a calf. He would get three or four foot off the ground and just really really buck. But he didn't turn back and spin. He didn't do all the elements that that they need to do to compete at a at an ABBI event at a. And, and I'll, I'll talk about the the ABBI events here in a minute. Um, the classes, um, but he didn't do all the elements he needed to do to go to any of those events. But he really, really, really bucked as a calf. He'd get way off the ground. And he'd, but he'd go out two or three jumps, and he'd turn back. And he might spin around. He'd jump out of it. He just didn't quite have what it takes to compete. So he was he was a bull that I kept uh, just just on potential that I saw in him. And it, it helped that he was a younger brother to a bull that, that I had that really, really bucked. They had the same – they're the same cow. So anyway, uh, I kept the bull – uh, we started bucking him with a rider when he was a three-year-old. <clears throat> he uh, and he really bucked. He'd blow way up off the ground. He'd kick. Um, just did all the things right, except he never really had a pattern, and, and it was hard to it was hard to get him to get him bucked. It was hard to get anybody to get on him because he just wanted to, he wanted to be really really rank, and he had some rank trips, um, but it was hard to get outs on him. Um, we we bucked him for eight months a year just trying to get out on him when we could and it, it got to a point where nobody wanted to get on him anymore and uh my partner my buddy cliff hicks he lives in texas uh he had him down there and and he and i talked and and we 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 made the decision to to sell him knowing that if we could have kept him longer and and got some more outs on him we probably would have got more money but we couldn't get outs on him so we sold him he ends up going to the PBR finals this year, and at one point in time, I think he was one of the top 15 bulls in the world. So had we been able to get outs on him, had we been able to, to keep bucking him and By out, you just mean getting, buck, getting, yeah, getting yeah. him bucked, getting him bucked, getting, getting, getting riders on him, getting outs, 
had we been able to do those things, uh, he would have been worth a lot more money. Cool thing about him, like I talked about him having an older brother. Both he and his older brother, uh, the older brother's name's Mule Train, and, and this bull's name is Malaka. Um, they're both out of the same cow. And we can talk about breeding here in a little bit if, yeah. if, if you want to come back to it. But it's pretty special to have two bulls at an event, at, at, at an event but at, at the world final, the PBR World Finals, to have two bulls out of one cow there is pretty special. It's not something that happens a lot. It happens, but not not a lot. And they were natural bred. They weren't they weren't flush calves, or you know, you can get several full siblings, you know, in a flush. Right. It's pretty special. But that bull probably to me is probably one that most people probably would have got rid of him because, like I said, he didn't have all the elements as a calf to to, to enter anywhere. And to keep one around just on potential, it's hard because you got to feed him for two or three years, and and things happen. So. He probably is is the most when I look well when I look back and I'm proud of yeah because he's 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 done he's done things that I didn't I knew he had potential but I didn't know he I couldn't I I, I didn't think he had this potential and potential and getting into the right hands he got into the right hands he got into the hands of people who could get him exposed and get him where he is and that's that's a big aspect of this business too that you know I can raise a bull that that bucks I can. I can do all these things that we've talked about doing, bringing them along, exposing them, training them, but then I sell them to somebody. They don't always do the right things with them. And not not when I say that, I don't mean they're intentionally hurting an animal or they're, they just, they might throw them in a pen of bulls that they've never been exposed to before. And just like anything else, there's a pecking order. Right. They're going to see who's the dominant animal. And sometimes that ruins a bull. Sometimes the change in nutrition. Sometimes just the the way they get handled. Even even the way somebody flanks a bull. You know, they put too much flank in them. They tighten the flank strap on them too much, or just there's all kinds of aspects, things that that can go wrong. And for a bull to get in the right hands is 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 almost as important as the rest of things that 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 got him to that point. Looking back, obviously it's hindsight twenty twenty. Uh, other than you know selling it, is there anything you think you could have did different with that one? Pro- yeah, probably. I, I probably could have made some phone calls, got him placed somewhere with somebody who could have got some outs on him and got him, got him further along than where he was. But it just, you know, at that point in time, it was it's time to move on from him. And, I, and I'm glad that he's gone on and done what he's done. I, I don't, I made money on him. I've got opportunities to breed to him. Um, I've stayed in contact with people that's bought him and I'm happy for them. I mean, that's why I do this. I, I like to breed those calves. I like to see those calves hit the ground. It's, you know, we talk a lot of your podcasts talk about mental health and things. Right. That's my therapy. I go out on the four wheeler and sit and watch my calves play. They come yeah. up, my pet them, scratch them. Now there's lots of headaches that go along with it sometimes, but the best part of it to me is is those calves being born and just seeing them develop, seeing them grow, helping mold them to what they are. I guess that's could be the the background of you know me being a coach. For so many years, you like to see development, right? And I guess that's my therapy with 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 my calves, with what I do. Sometimes, like I said, it's a headache. Sometimes it's hard, but but I can go out there this afternoon and sit on that four wheeler and just watch them play, and it's it's good. It's uh, therapy, I guess. Yeah. Earlier, you said pattern when you was talking about bucking the bull. You couldn't find a pattern. Was that just the bull riders couldn't didn't know how they was going to ride? No. Anymore? When I say that, I refer to the bull itself. Some bulls. When I, when I say pattern, they jump out there and they spin, they kick. Okay. They do all the elements. If they don't, when I say pattern up, that it just means that, that when you buck them, they're going to do those things every time. 
Um, when you first start bucking them, it may, like I said earlier, it may take seven to 10 trips to, to get them to where they start doing those things uh, fluently or in a natural motion. It just refers to the pattern of how they buck. Some of them never have a set pattern, like that bull malaka I was talking about. He's he doesn't have the same trip ever. He might go out two jumps. He might jump turn back right in the in the buck and shoot, and you know when the gate opens, or he may be out two or three jumps, really jumping way up in the air and kicking hard, and, and then you know turns back and starts to spin. So like I said, some some don't ever pattern up, and then some some have a pattern from day one and they, and they do the same thing consistently, I guess. As far as uh, – I want to go back and touch some more on the history in southwest Oklahoma uh, as far as genetics and how it got started, the breeding programs and stuff. So I'll go back kind of to what I know of, of breeding programs and kind of where they started. Um, there's three main, uh, I guess what you'd call, breeders who started breeding their own animals. Uh, and there's, there's several throughout the years who have, who have done this. But the three big ones that really stick out or come to mind who've really impacted the, the buck and bull world. Um, the, these three guys put on actual rodeos. They had a rodeo, they had rodeo companies. They put on the whole, the whole rodeo, you know, bucking horses, bucking bulls, uh, steer, you know, the whole, everything, roping calves. Um, and then back in those days, you know, those guys who had rodeo companies, they would go to the sale barn and, and buy, pot loads of bulls and, and, and buck through them to see if they could find something that bucked good enough to go into their rodeo. Um, so throughout the years, that's kind of how it went. Well, I think around 1936, back in California, a guy named Bob Barnby started, um, he started breeding his own stock for his rodeos. And a lot of good bulls go back to his, uh, to his lineage. There's, there's a ton of them. Um, so on the West Coast, you know, a lot of breeders' programs go back to what Bomb Bar- Barbie started back in 1936. Um, closer to home, a man named Tom Harlan out in Pampa, Texas, I believe he lived in Pampa, um, back in like 1940, he started doing the same thing. Started, He had some crossbred cattle. He had these bulls that bucked. He started breeding to them. And then, you know, they bucked through. The, they would use those calves in, in, in the different events at their rodeo. And then as they got older, they used them in the bull riding. A lot of people in this area, that's kind of where that start kind of come from was Tom Harlan. Well, 1963, I got him Charlie Plummer up in Sarah. He started breeding. Well, he started using stock from Tom Harlan. So most of the animals in this this part of the country, uh, I would say in the last 20, 25 years, were referred to as Plummer, Plummer bread or Plummer stock. Um, and it's kind of went away from it in the last 10 to 15 years. There's lots of factors why, but... Those cattle were pretty easy to spot because they were they were white animals with white spots, white ears, uh, white nose or black ears, black nose, black spots. Really mean, really wild. Try to hook you every chance they got. <laughs> um, a lot of line breeding. So that, that's kind of where the start in this area I would say come from. In the eighties, here locally, there was uh, Larry Kephart. He was out east of Lawton. He was kind of. He was buying buying stuff from Charlie Plummer. He was putting together bulls from from bull sales from wherever he could get them. And then over at Cash, uh, Ronnie Roach with Raptor Seven R, they, they he he got his start from from Plummer when when Charlie Charlie Plummer passed away. Ronnie went and bought a set of heifers from him. And one point in time, that was the best set of cows in America over in Cash, Oklahoma, that Ronnie Roach had. You couldn't you could buy you could buy from him. You you got on a waiting list. 
but they, it was probably the best the best set of cows anywhere. But Ronnie Ronnie passed away, and like everything, you know, his family's busy. They have other things they're involved in. So that's I believe they still have some cows, but I don't believe they're breeding any any bucking stock anymore. So that kind of our area has been a hotbed for um, bull riding over at Ardmore. The the Pages DNH Cattle Company they 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 bought a lot of animals from from Larry Kephart. They're they're probably the number one. They are the number one breeders in in America. I mean they they got four or five hundred cows probably, or maybe three hundred. I don't know, but they they're the number one breeders anywhere. They they dominate. Great people, but just around here locally, like I said earlier, there's in the last twenty years there's been thirty to forty people, most similar to me, smaller smaller operations, you know, fifteen to fifty cows somewhere in that number. But like you said, you know, you, you came to Southwest Oklahoma and everywhere you look, you, you see bucking bulls or this or that. And that all stems from the American Bucket Bull Incorporated and what they do. The opportunities that, that they've they've gave us as breeders. You know, if it, if it wasn't for the ABBI, I don't know that I would still be, I'd still have cattle and I, I, I don't know that I would be raising bucking bulls. Just the opportunities and, and things that it provides, the events that they provide and it makes our cattle worth a lot more money than breeding cattle and, and taking them to the sale barn to sell every year. A lot more work, a lot more expense goes into it. But for me, I just, I really enjoy the, like I said earlier when we started, I, I really enjoy the wild aspect, the athletic aspect that these animals have. But the breeding, the, it all started, like I said, with those with those three main guys. And, and there's other big breeders now that's branched out and done things and that I could talk about. But those are the three main were, were the Breeding programs started, I guess I would say, and they started with just crossbred animals. They were Bramers and Longhorns, Mexican Fighting Bulls, Hereford Charlets, White Parks. Is that where the aggression comes in some of them bulls? Yeah, because like I was reading about that, and like uh, like some people they're pro for the aggression afterwards, right? But it's it's kind of tied in just that that bull's bucking hard. He's going to be a little bit aggressive. It's just I, I do a lot of comparing to athletes. You know, if you, you look at wrestlers. You know, I, I, we both kind of have a wrestling background. I coach wrestling. You you see it in your athletes. The good ones, they've got a fire. They got a passion. They've got a hunger. They want to they want to go out there and whip you. And the animals right. kind of have the same the same thing in mind when they're performing. They're they're wanting to win. They know that they're competing against somebody. So when they go out there and, and they buck somebody off, especially when they're young, they're going to get after you. They're going they're going to look for somebody. They're going to get somebody. As they get older, they'll stop doing that to a cent, to, uh, to a certain extent. But, but yeah, it's, just, it's bred into them. Um, you know, like I talked about earlier, Charlie Plummer. There was a lot of line breeding. It's kind of a running joke in the in the bull business. If if that's how you breed your animals, if you're line breeding, if it works, then it's line breeding. If it don't, it's inbreeding. <laughs> um, so it's. I think early on they bred for those characteristics of mean because that intensity's there. I think that that. That intensity and that meanness made them turn back, you know, close to the shoots and spin and, and do those things. There's lots of people smarter than me that that could talk about all those things and and might tell you different. I don't know, but that's just kind of what I see um, and what I've you know learned over the years talking to people is is yeah you, that intensity. It either comes from the background of possibly Mexican fighting animals or line breeding. And I did a lot of line breeding when I first started. It seemed like it seemed if it worked, it was good. And when I say that, if if they bucked, doing it that way was good. 
there was a lot of instances where the they just got too mean, too too aggressive. They were harder to to train and to uh, to handle. I had some who, no matter what I did, didn't learn anything. They they would fight me from day one until I hold them off and got rid of them. You know, some people who have bigger operations who can keep bulls around and, and let them grow up to be three or four year olds before they start putting riders on them and, and those things, they might be able to keep animals like that around. But if they don't show me pretty something pretty soon, pretty quick, I have to get rid of them. I, I can't keep them and feed them. Fortunately, I've got, like I talked about Cliff Hicks earlier down in Texas, I've kind of got a network down there that those good bulls, uh, I keep them till they're two coming three-year-olds and, and then I send them down there and they start putting putting trips on them, start getting outs on them. But as far as, uh, you know, the breeding programs, they've really progressed and, and uh, everybody's doing different things. Um, everybody's breeding differently. Everybody's chasing the bruisers, the the things like that. If, if you're familiar with bruiser, he's arguably the best bull that ever lived, uh, you know, three-time world champion. Won lots and lots and lots of money over probably he's probably won close to a million or half a million and and his offspring are doing the same thing. But a lot of times, you know, people like me, we can't afford to breed to a bruiser because straw semen on him. I don't know, it might be five thousand now. Jeez. So people like me, we we try to breed to the best that we can, and then uh, a lot of times that's where the freaks come from. That's where the the good rank ones come from is stepping out of what everybody else is doing and trying something different the the breeding part of it that's that's more common i think when people realize especially like in the dog world i always see a lot of people uh, i got a couple friends that uh they raise the bully breed bulldogs now and they mm-hmm. they do all that stuff too it's- and what what kind of makes it different for the buck and bull industry talking about breeding and and most other registries they go off of the animals epds they they can look at what that animal has created in the past that animal isn't competing like these animals are. So for us to, you know, what we look at... EPDs or pedigree? Yeah, they, they look at what their pedigree's done and, and the different aspects to that. It's it's hard for, for in the buck and bull business to do that because you can breed the best bull to the best cow you got in that calf. There's no guarantee that calf's going to buck. Um, I talked about earlier having those mule train and, and uh, Malaka, you know, those two brothers at the world finals. That cow... She hit, she, she produced those two bulls. I had a bull out of her uh, after those two that was absolutely terrible. I just, he just didn't work. So for whatever reason, sometimes, sometimes it don't work, <laughs> even though the cow's a good cow and, and she's produced some really good ones. And some cows, some cows, everything they have works. Some, sometimes you just get lucky like that. Sometimes they'll have one or two good ones in their life and that, and that's it, you know? So if you find a good one, it's, you, you gotta, you gotta hold on to them. But as far as you know, like other other registries, other other animals in their registries, there's a little bit they can predict what their offspring are going to do a little better than we can because they're animals that are competing or doing things that they shouldn't be doing. Right. You look at a bull buck. Should a, should a bull be able to do what he does? No, they shouldn't. They're, I mean, they're <laughs> it's it's they're, they're athletes and it's amazing what they can do. So you can't predict it. It's just like a human. You can breed Michael Jordan or take Michael Jordan and, and he can have a baby with the, the best female athlete in the world. And that baby may or may not be an athlete. It's just genetics are, are kind of funny how they work. And it's roll of the dice. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, uh, and that's kind of the fun part about every year after I wing calves, I start going through them and, and handling them and then start bucking them. 
I've got a lot of people to help me that that's helped me throughout the years. And, and, but you always like, I'll just use my nephew, for instance, we'll, we'll look at the calves and, and start looking and, and trying to pick which one's going to be the, the best one. And, uh, a lot of times it's not the one that it should be, or you think it should be. Right. Um, a few years ago I had one that was, he was born later than the others. He was tiny. He looked like a little runt. I had written him off. I didn't, I didn't even want to buck him. He had a big pot belly and he didn't look athletic at all. It looked like a, if anybody knows what a jersey looks like, it's kind of what he looked like. But we ended up bucking. He's the best thing we bucked. In the video, it's funny because I video everything we buck because you want to document their trips and, and be able to show the, the potential buyers and different things. Is that a requirement? No, it's just if I'm going to sell you an animal, you want to yeah. see a video. Right. So that's just, you just do it. But anyway, in that in that particular video, we, we bucked him and, uh, in the video, you can see me. I about fall down laughing just because it wasn't what we expected out of him. I would, like I said, I wasn't even going to buck him. I was going to get rid of him. I was going to take him to Selborne, and we buck him, and he's he was the best thing we bucked that day. And it just it's it's funny how how it all works. Um, and I've heard several people say that before. You don't look for the pretty one. Don't look for the one that looks the best. Look for that one that's rough around the edges. And I, I guess you just you just don't expect it from him. I think a lot of that ties into, I don't know, kind of what you talked about earlier, athletes. You know, if you look at it from that standpoint, like when, you, when I'm looking for athletes, wrestlers, football players, anything like that, uh, I mean, there's a lot of kids that can pass that eye test. Oh, absolutely. I mean, they just don't. But some of them kids that are rough around the edge a little bit. They got a little dog in them. They got a little, little dog in them. And it's the same with these animals. And I say that, I mean, a lot of those animals are, are gentle as can be. Um, they don't all start that way, but... Like I keep talking about the bull bruiser, HD Page could walk in there and scratch him and rub on him and love on him and everything else. He's like a big dog, but when he bucked, he bucked. And I don't know that he started that way. He he probably was wild and everything else, but they got to have a little bit extra in them. And it's the same with with people. With that just comes with like training and stuff, hands on. Yeah, the more you handle them, the more you're around them. They like I talked about when I start them, I start moving them around. The more things you do with them, the slower they get as far as reacting as far as when you first start them they're, they're bouncing like i said they're bouncing off the pins they're trying to jump out uh the more you start handling the more you expose them they slow down they start thinking instead of just reacting and i think that that's what the more you buck them the more you handle them, the more you haul them they learn that nothing you do is going to hurt them so then they gentle down and some of them start gentle from the get-go um last year one of the bulls i bred with gentle as can be you could walk out there and he'd come across the pasture for you to scratch him you can walk in there with him, rub all over him. This year, I've got four or five calves out of him that already are just almost like that. They they want you to touch them. They want you to scratch them. They want that affection, I guess. I don't know if that's what the right word or not, but they they like it. They want you to. But that bull bucked. He, he, he's good. Is that is that a part of the genetic traits, too, when you're looking for bulls? Could be. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm assuming hand, handling is a big deal. You don't want a bull that's going crazy. You can't control him. It could be, yeah. It, just, it depends on what you're after. It depends on what your program is, I guess, what your likes are. I'm getting to the age now where I don't like I don't like running. I don't like being chased. <laughs> so as far as the breed bull itself, yeah, I want one that's not not wild, not an idiot. not. I want them, I want them to have a brain if I'm going to breed to them. In the past, I've bred the wild, crazy ones, and, and it just – and it works, and it, and and it's good. It just kind of depends on your what you want. Like that bull last year, he was perfect for me. He bucks. He has great bloodlines. His uh, pedigree goes back six or seven generations. I mean, he's got all the he's got all the things that you want. Not super super rank, but he bucks. And uh, 
and I liked him. Like I said, he's gentle. I could go out in the pasture. And I didn't have to worry about my kids walking out there and him getting after them. But like going back to what the question, is that something you look at? Uh, yeah, you want them to have that heat. You want them to have that athleticism. But they also, I've bred some in the past that were just so wild. They, they were so wild and what they passed on to their calves, those calves wouldn't learn. They didn't think. They didn't use their brain. And maybe they did and I didn't. <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, I, I just, like I said, at this point in my life, I, I look for, they can be wild. They just got to handle. They got to they gotta go in a pen whenever I go feed. They, they need to go in that pen when I need to catch them, I can. I don't need them getting out, going to the neighbor's cows. So, yeah, I just kind of all, I guess, what all you look for in, in your breeding stock, in your bulls that you use. Was there something that you did that was just so backwards that, you know, somebody had to pull you to the side? Like, look, man, it's, it's a lot easier if you do it this way. Yeah, I think in anything you do, it's that way. Um, with Mike, like I said, we worked together. I was in college. We worked together building metal buildings for another guy and talked a lot about bulls and, and different things. And I spent a lot of time traveling with him in those days. Back then, I, I just, I, I'd go and just travel and go different places and do different things. You know, now as an adult and having kids, I don't get to do those things as much as I'd like. I don't get to go to the events like I, like I need to. I have to send my bulls to, like I said, down to Cliff Hicks and, and those guys down there to go to events. I don't get, I just can't do it at this point in my life because having young kids and, and the job I got. But, um, but you know, back in those days of Mike, uh, we went to, uh, we went to Denver. We went different places together, spent lots of times traveling, talking about different scenarios with bulls and, and kind of what he looked at and what he liked in them. And he introduced me to a ton of people in that time. And any questions I ever had, I, you know, I could go to him and, and he'd help me. And like I said, without him, I probably would have never started this because I didn't have, I didn't have any connections. I didn't have any avenue to do it because I worked with him and just his uh, advice and things he would tell me. Yeah, he got me started. And, and as far as things I did wrong and stuff, yeah, I probably did a lot of things wrong. <laughs> but I always, like I said, I, anywhere I go, any any breeders I'm around or, or anywhere I go, I, I, I try to keep my mouth shut and I try to listen as much as I can. I'm, I'm always watching what people are doing and how they're doing it. Because things, it's like anything else, things change. What what you're doing today, it may not be the same in two or three years as far as handling, feeding, different things. I mean, it, the basics are always there, but there's always ways to improve things. And I'm always I'm always learning. I, and I'll, I'll be the first to tell you, I don't know everything. I don't know I don't know much of anything, but I'm always learning. I'm always paying attention. My dad used to tell me that all the time. Eyes and ears open, mouth shut. You have to be. Um, uh, there, there are some people who got the gift of gab, and and they can talk a good story and different. And I'm not that way, so I've always, I've always tried to pay attention and learn from others who are doing it. Instead of there's that saying that I forget how it goes, but basically, um, you listen to somebody very long, and you, you're going to figure them out. Uh, whether they're full of it or if they really know what they're talking about. Right. Wish I could think what that saying was because it would have been perfect right there. <laughs> hey, I tell you what, I made a, one of the podcasts I did. I can't think who I did it with. Maybe it was, uh, oh, it was uh, Tom. I quoted uh, Tough Heaterman, and it was mm-hmm. a total wrong quote. that He never said that. <laughs> yeah, it is what it is. When he slammed his finger in his door, I thought after that he said, his dad told him, well, if you're going to be dumb, you better be tough. And I couldn't find anywhere he said that. I don't know where I learned that from or how I heard it. Uh, there was a song about it, but uh, yeah. 
Yeah, it's uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, that would have been perfect right there, but I can't think of it. Well, and I'm sure it. whoever's listening to this, they're still with us. They're gonna. I give it a quick goog. Yeah. Man, I love I love talking about mentors. I just feel they're uh they're so important, and uh you know especially nowadays they're just so important. And you talked about one earlier, Mike. But uh, is there anybody else you want to bring up or talk about? No, just looking back on all of it, I just like I said, I've had a lot of people that's helped me and, and done things for me, and wouldn't be where I'm at without it. Probably, like I said, Mike Barber got me started, and then my buddy, my partner Cliff Hicks, probably as instrumental in any of this, probably as instrumental in this as anybody. Just I'm gonna razz him a little bit. He's an old man, and uh, he's kind of cantankerous at times, but he's kind of kept me going. I think he'll be. I think he just had a birthday. I think he was 78. He kind of he grew up boxing and thinks he's tough. He thinks he thinks a boxer could beat a wrestler. Mm. Which I have to tell him, no, that's not true. Mm. It's hard to fight when you're on your yeah. back. But anyway, I, I owe a lot to him. I owe a lot to my dad. My dad helped me throughout the years, feeding and buying hay and different things. And so, as far as uh, you know, like outlaw stuff, is there any of that stuff that goes on in bull riding? As in cheating or just somebody raising bulls and doing something else? Yes, there's there are yes. Anytime there's money involved, there's going to be cheating, um, and no matter what. No matter what industry you're in or business or what, there's always going to be cheating. There's over 200,000 animals that's registered in ABBI. So everybody's looking for an advantage. Everybody's looking to to be the best they can. And there's been instances in the past, um, zip ties attached to flanks. And I, I've never done it. I don't, I don't understand, but I guess... The thought was when they when they put that flank around that bull's flank and they they suck it up, tie it. Those zip ties will poke that bull to make them buck harder. Whether it worked or not, I don't know. But the person got caught, they got fined, and and there's been instances of of bulls being being drugged, being on uh, steroids. They test for that. <sighs> yes and no. <laughs> they there's always they say they do that. Um, there's always a chance, yes, that they will. They, they have tested some in the past, yes. There has been somebody got caught doing it, um, and that person got banned from the ABBI. They can no longer compete in the ABBI. And that was 10 or ten years or so ago, or maybe longer now. But, but yes, uh, there, there's always an opportunity for cheating if, if things aren't governed and uh, paid attention to, I guess. I mean, even – I mean – I'm assuming they test at some point, but I mean, even if they do test, I mean, you see today with you know professional athletes, and you know, I don't know though, it, it gives an edge. You know, if if you shoot a bull up with steroids, and they the animals are already athlete, ath, they're already athletes. They're already on such good feed programs that they're muscle bound and they're big and they're strong and and they're in the prime of their life. They're in shape. And it's just like a human being. You inject steroids or, or testosterone or whatever it is, and there's a difference. If that's not governed, people are going to do it. And I don't know anybody that does it, and I I don't know that people are still doing it. But there is always a, an opportunity or a chance that your, your animal is going to get drug tested. In today's age right now, it's really hard to hide something, right? So if you did get busted, I would assume that wouldn't be good for your reputation. No, it'll ruin you. You're, you're done. I mean, it's... Uh, and it's not just your reputation. If the FDA finds out, it could really. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I I say that I don't I, I don't know for fact, but I mean you're you're implanting substances in an animal that eventually could end up in the food chain. So there yeah. there's there's that aspect of it. You know, if you got an animal that's hurt or something, there's always there's there's times where animals do get certain 
steroids or whatever it may be, you know, if there's an injury or something like that, but there's also a, a, a period that you're not going to, you're not going to go buck them or haul them somewhere. So yeah, there's, it's not something that I think is necessary, but like I said, when you're talking about bulls being able to win a hundred thousand dollars at the end of the year or whatever it may be, people sometimes will take that chance this year alone, just in the two year old competitions, which we haven't even talked about the, the aged competitions yet. Um, and we'll do that right now. I'll just yeah. to lead to lead in, and if I forget where I'm at, I may ask you to take me back to the good. to the money one. But um, just in this year alone, in the ABBI, they're going to pay over two million dollars just to the two year old futurity bulls. So from uh, for first place to to just to throughout the year, there's two million dollars over two million dollars in prize money. Dang. Um, but the ABBI has different. Uh, age classes there's yearlings which are just bulls that are a year old their age starts january 1 and ends is it december 31st is it 31 days in december december 31st after that they're a year old if they were born in november of that year january 1 they're still a year old so everybody tries to have their calves earlier in the year um depending on where you're at in the united states some people have them in january Last last year, I started calving early February, and it bit me in the butt because we had that big ice storm, snowstorm that came through, and I said I'll never do that again. So now I I shoot for first of March, somewhere in there. Uh, real quick, is is breeding season? Is it similar to the regular beef cattle? Yeah, they just cow cycle. You know, just whenever and I mean, there, I there's every no, eighteen to twenty one days. But there's no advantage of based off when the it's born. Yes. Yes, there there is, and that's that's uh, that's why I said if they're born in November, Jan- come January first, they're a year old. They're oh, just two months old. Yeah, I got you. so they're going to be behind those bulls okay. that were born back in the spring, early early in the year. So, like I said, depending on where you live in, in, in the United States, um, if you live down in the South, you're calving January probably, and some people here probably still do that. But um, for me, it's just not feasible. I can't I can't take a chance of losing an animal because of the the weather or put myself in a position where um, I have got like last year, for instance, I ended up with two calves. I had to raise on a bottle because of the, the weather. When they, when they calved, I couldn't get the cows caught because there was six inches of snow on the ground. Just, just different things. I see some up. photos of that. You just put them in your truck and stuff. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, both of those calves that last year, one was a bull, one's a heifer. It took, it took a lot to save them and, and we did. And then there, I still got them. Um, but I can't put myself in that position to do that with, you know, having a full-time job and, yeah. and kids. And uh, it, it was a lot to, to maintain. But back to the the age, the the classifications, you know, that yearling, the yearling bulls, you know, you asked if there's an advantage. You know, if you got a, a calf born in November, you're not going to be able to compete with them that, that yearling year because they're going to be so far behind the others. So the earlier you, you can calve, the best f- for that aspect of it. Then you got the two-year-old futurities. What the, their two-year-old futurities is what they're considered, what they call. So their two-year-old year, uh, you're bucking them with a the dummy. The yearling year and the two-year-old year, futurity year, you're bucking them with a the dummy. Once they become three-year-olds, they're called derbies, and they're with live riders, and they buck them, like I said, with live riders. They judge them for eight seconds. With the futurities and the yearlings, they, they buck them for four seconds with the dummy. Uh, their four-year-old year, their classic, it's what they call their classic year. Same thing. They're bucking them with that, with that rider, eight seconds. And those are some of the bulls. The three- and four-year-olds, you'll see them on TV sometimes, mostly four-year-olds. 
Uh, some three-year-olds are mature enough and big enough to, to handle it, but um, sometimes it's it's mostly the four-year-olds that you'll see it on TV sometimes. If it's, uh, you know, the PBRs on TV, sometimes that first round will be a classic event, and that's the four-year-olds. And then after their four-year-old year, they have what's called maturity events, which there's not very many of those, but those are the five-year-old and up. They also have uh, junior classes for kids that are 9 to 18 years old. That kid has to flank his own has to flank the bull, and then they have cow, a cowgirls division where it's females. Um, what's what's pretty cool is in the past it was hard. It's hard to sell females unless they're proven producers, um, unless they've had calves that, that that have bucked and been good. It's it's hard to sell those females unless they're that. In the last couple of years, they've started bucking heifers or started competing with heifers, um, which is is, is some people like it. Some people don't. Um, some people's thought process on that is, is if that heifer bucks, her calves are going to buck. Um, the chances of them bucking is probably better if that female bucked as a calf. But what I've seen from it, um, a lot of times those heifers will buck harder than the bulls do at that age. And uh, then you breed to them, and and you don't they don't they don't produce like they bucked. I've had I've had heifers I've bucked, and they didn't buck very good, but I liked them, like the way they looked, like the the breeding they had, and I kept them and bred to them, and, and they outproduced the heifers that really bucked. So like like I said, there's a yearling year, two year old year, three year old year, and four year old year competing with heifers. There's lots and lots of chances for people to make money, and it's because of ABBI and the direction that that's going. Is it the same? Is it the same uh, bull riders on the females as well? They just buck them with the dummy. They buck. Oh, okay. They buck with the yearling bulls. Okay. They buck them with the dummy. Now, where I thought you was going to go with that question was uh, the riders and like the classics and derbies. Some of those will be riders that you see on TV that they use in those events, just depending on where the event is, what time of year it is, if there's bigger PBR events going on. If there if there's not bigger PBR events going on, sometimes those riders will enter those lower level events. I tell you what, I'm going to edit that so it sounds like that's exactly what I was asking. <laughs> <laughs> what you got to do? The PBR and the, and the ABBI, they they brought in so much money. You know, the PBR itself, they bring in millions and millions of dollars in sponsorships in billions of views people are are, the opportunity to watch bull riding brings in lots and lots of views they started uh on cbs sports network pbr is televised there you can download pluto tv and uh it's non-stop bull riding there's things from the past there's present there's also other uh western sporting events on there as well but but their events are are televised or, or aired on pluto tv and it's a pretty cool thing that they've done just getting it in front of people, opportunity for people to see it. So the the bulls and the EBR, right? You you saying they're most of them four year olds? Four and up. Four and up. Yeah, I mean there's some that's three, but most so what's four what's and up. the max like active? Like the oldest ones going to be active? Oh, it's <laughs> it's hard to say. I mean, there's bulls that's that's bucked till they're 12, 13, 14 years old Damn. in the past. To be on that level to PBR, if they're if they're Nine or ten years old, they're pretty special. They've been doing it for a while, and he's um, gonna have a good life as soon as he's done. He's just breeding after that, huh? Yeah, and you know, bull a lifespan for a bull. I think chicken on a chain is like twenty-one or two years old. I think he's still alive, but that's old. That's 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 like a, a hundred-year-old man, or probably or older even. They usually by nine or ten they start retiring them, and then they'll live fourteen, fifteen, sixteen years old probably. I mean, 
just depending. Brewers are passed away here oh, about a month or a month and a half ago, and I don't think he was but like 11 or 12 maybe, if he's that old, I think. He was the one you said they cloned, right? No, uh, Houdini was one of them they cloned. Um, Houdini, so uh, is cloning do good? As far as bucking, I don't know if they ever bucked any of those clones. I, I'm not sure. Um, well, that's why I was going to ask, are they just going to be, are they just pretty much breeding stock at that point? Yeah, and, and going back to that, and I failed to mention Panhandle Slim was another bull um, that they cloned. Um, there was three or four clones of his that they bucked. They were good. I don't know that they were as good as Panhandle Slim was, but they bucked and, and they, they were hauled. They, were, they went to PBR events, and, and uh, I forgot about Panhandle Slim being cloned, but I think a lot of cloning stuff, though. To me, it makes sense if you're just doing it for like breeding stock, but there's just no guarantee. And I don't know that it's, I don't if for that to be, for it to be worthwhile, you would have to take those animals. You'd have to you'd have to study on it. You'd have to see what the what their calves did for four or five years. And that's the thing is, you don't know, you really don't know how good a cow is until she's three or four years old and then even then she might have a calf that's really good that first year or two and then may never have another one so it takes depending on when you breed her um i wait until my cat my heifers are two years two years old before i breed them some people breed them as yearlings um i just want them to get a chance to grow and develop and have the best chance of of being the best she can be before i breed her so you really don't know you know if you breed her at two years old she has a calf at three by the time she's four you're just now maybe starting to buck that calf. So by the time she's five, that calf's been bucked a handful of times or 10 times or whatever it may be. And maybe he worked, maybe he didn't. So, you know, you're looking at a cow being four, five, six years old before you or have an idea if she's going to work or not. So the cloning deal, um, I, you know, I don't know. They would have to, they'd have to sit down and study it and, you know, do whatever scientists and all those people do research do. Yeah, I just, some of that's just weird, man. I, I just think, like, for example... If you was to if if Michael Jordan had a clone, the same era that he come up in, that one runs not going to be Michael Jordan. There's just too many external factors. Yeah. You can't. They don't have the same brain. They're not. One might have the work ethic. The other one don't. One might have the hunger to be the best they can be. The other don't. And it's the same with animals. I think we talked about breeding earlier, the flushing and AI and artificial insemination. Those things. You know, you can flush and get all these full siblings you want. Well, then you take you take those embryos and you put them in these commercial cattle who are gentle and they're they're not like that rodeo cow is. It's that's got that uh, that dog in her. Yeah. And that calf's being raised by a gentle a gentle cow. I don't know that it matters. A lot of those you you see all these full siblings out of calves that have a full sibling that really really bucked and and they don't amount to nothing or they don't they don't match what that. That full sibling here really buck. They don't match his his accomplishments. Well, heck, boss man, we're over an hour right now. Uh, is there anything else you want to put out? You know, I don't know. I just I just hope that you know people who listen to this uh, first of all aren't annoyed with listening to me talk because it's not my strong point. But or any of my stupid just, questions. <laughs> you know, just if this is something you're interested in, start looking it up. Google it. It's a wonderful tool. American Buck and Bull Incorporated. Professional bull riders. Just I have a Facebook group or a Facebook page, McCracken Bull Company. There's different groups on there that buy and sell cattle and look me up on Facebook and I can point you in the right direction if you're interested in getting into the business or I don't always have the answers or, you know, maybe what somebody's looking for, but I can point you in the right direction to people who can. It's a it's a really neat industry. 
like I said, the people are interested in it. Look, Google Google uh, American Buck and Bull Incorporated, PBR, Professional Bull Riders. Uh, look me up on Facebook. I guess that's about it. Hell yeah. If you have any information leading to the arrest and conviction of the murder of Barry J. Bean, you can find me at Mr. Bean's Podcast 1 on Twitter, all one word, or at Mr. Bean's Podcast, all one word, on Facebook. And you can listen to my podcast on Podbean or all major streaming services.